is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, we will be talking about the challenges of the direct contact experience with my guest, Mike Stevens. He is a native of New Hampshire and was featured in a new book titled Granite Skies by Nomar Slevik, and this book was just released a few weeks ago. Now, we cover Mike's story very thoroughly in this, but the book itself also covers a handful of other cases from New Hampshire and other places and other sites throughout New England. And this book is a, is a pretty quick read. It's only about 200 pages, and the focus of it is Mike's life of contact. But it really goes a lot further and deals with the emotions and the challenges and, and I will say it, it deals with the trauma of these experiences, and it does it in a really thoughtful way. Now, Mike and I talked a little bit before we started the formal interview, and we agreed that it was okay for me to, to bring up some of the more emotional issues. And, and now, even though he said yes, I was cautious about, about my questioning and what I would ask. And I did ask it. I went there. And I am really grateful that Mike was so open. I, I really appreciate it. Now, also about halfway through the interview, the Skype connection faltered a bit. And at a couple points, Mike is a little bit hard to hear. Uh, you should be able to follow everything just fine, but just be aware that the quality does drop at a few points. And I just wanted to give you a heads up, just so you know that it doesn't last too long, the break in the audio quality. This conversation was recorded on August 24th, 2020. Please enjoy. Mike, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Mike. And, uh, I'm glad to be able to come on. Great. Hey, so you and I met at a conference going back, uh, I think, about a year and a half ago, and it took place in Warwick, Rhode Island. It was uh, had some really amazing uh, speakers, but I think the speakers seemed to even outnumber the people in the room uh, at, at times. So it was a kind of a poorly attended conference. And you gave a talk. Now, were you sort of coming out at that talk, or had you already given other talks? Um, I had given other talks, and generally, if it was um, a conference atmosphere, I would pick a topic within ufology, um, most likely something to do with experiencers, and just talk about that. Um, if it was a smaller group, I'd tell a little bit about my experience, but it was kind of the first time in a major setting where I talked about most of my experiences. And I was in the room and and I was so heartbroken that there were very few people attending your talk and the, it was in the morning at a very poorly attended conference and there were just a handful of us in the room and I was really riveted and I guess the way the talk proceeded was you just telling story after story after story after story and it was absolutely riveting so I had no idea I sensed it was new for you I had no idea that that was the first conference where you really really went for it and just talked about your own experiences. Yeah, I mean, it was always kind of there. It's, you know, with anything, it's a lot easier to talk about somebody else's stuff than your own. So I, I had avoided it for as long as possible, as long as I could. But uh, 
you know, eventually everybody just keeps asking anyways. So it's going to come out. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was, and that was a good conference for for me um, just because it was so small in the audience. It was a little more comfortable to share. It's more like the small groups that I'd shared it with before. And you have also been working with a support group in New Hampshire, right? Um, yes, I run Granite Sky Services, which is a support group for experiencers. And then we're, um, we work with um, Starborn Support out of Maine as well. And, you know, because we're also local, you know, there's no competition. We don't really care where somebody goes to get help. We just want them to get help. So there's a lot of, you know sharing information and clients of who's closer to who, who can help who and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that was my sense that, that even though you didn't talk about it much in the, in the talk, and there's actually very little of it in the book, it's referenced off and on throughout the book, but, but how is that going for you? The role of, I guess, of, uh, I guess you're not a professional therapist by training, but, um, just someone to, to offer some counseling or offer some help or a listening ear. Um, it's going good this year, obviously been a struggle with, um, you know, everything closing down and that sort of thing. We used to do at least a meeting a week and now we're down to like once a month in a park, but uh, it's one of those things, you know, even with the internet, I, I, I need to make the personal connection with somebody, uh, over the period doesn't work. I need to be in person with them. Because, I mean, even people I've worked with for years, you know, I need to read their body language. If they come in and they, I go, hey, how's it going? And they go, great. And their body language tells me absolutely they're not doing great. You know, I can't do that over the computer. So this year has been a struggle, but no worse on that than it has been for anybody else. Yeah, it's been a struggle for everyone. You just were part of a book project, and um, the book is titled Granite Skies. And how was that process for you that of the creating that book um so the author nomar slavic um i had worked with him on some other project before um getting him in as a speaker at a small center we were running that dealt with you know ufos paranormal type stuff spiritual stuff so we together in that professional atmosphere like that and that's how we got to know each other and one day he approached me and said, you know, I'd like my next book to be about your experiences. And he didn't even really know what they were at that point. He had just heard, you know, through a grapevine that I'd had quite a few experiences. So because I knew him um, and had seen the quality of work and how he treated the subject and stuff, I agreed. And somewhere along the process the, the book changed and we didn't end up writing the book we thought we were going to, you know, we sat down very formal for the first time, did like, you know, a regular interview where I just told them one story after the other of experiences and, you know, he recorded it, wrote it down and he did what he needed to do to start writing and this and that. And then, you know, he'd call or text or message with questions and this and that. Um, it became apparent that, there was too much going on for him to get off the one interview. So we spent another day, did a second full long-term interview and drove around to a bunch of the places where these things actually happened. And somewhere 
in that process of him just trying to gather information and figure out what was going on, um, something changed. Like we both thought this was kind of going to be the stereotypical book. Like here's just a person and here's their experiences. End of the book. You know, people like that. It's interesting. Something, you know, they haven't heard, but somewhere along the lines, I, you know, as we're, I was telling him everything and having to redrudge all these memories and relive it. I was kind of like, well, you're going to do that. Maybe you should know this and maybe you should know that too. And it got into the more, not so much what the experiences were, lights in the sky, craft, that sort of thing, but the emotional turmoil, the, um, just my life in general through certain stages of it. And it really became about the effect that, going through these experiences can have on a person and well you know my my story and encounters kind of keep the pages turning the book's really more about the human experience than anything extraterrestrial and that was what really drew me in in a lot of ways um is that your own turmoil and your own your own issues is something i could relate to strongly because i certainly uh have struggled with both these experiences as well as like, you know, just trying to deal with my own mood and my own just, you know, pressing through and, and, and living my life has been tough. It's gotten easier, but there was a chapter in my life when this stuff just took over and I was, I wasn't doing very well. So, so when I read your book, I really understood and felt a real kinship to, to that, that thread that ran through the entire book. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, that was not something we planned on doing. Um, You know, it just came with working through the process, working with Nomar. um, You know, we really began to uh, just bond over this project and make a further our friendship. And, you know, once we had that trust, it really let us tell the story we were supposed to. I mean, I almost feel it was, you know, an unseen hand that pushed us into writing the book that, um, that the end result is, um, instead of, you know, just kind of what we thought was the basic version, just a, a bunch of, you know, synchronicities and coincidences, if you believe in those along the way that just kind of pushed and shaped the book to what it is. And yeah, it was kind of terrible really terrified to you know have the ending so personal and have it be so raw because you know it's like my mother's got to read this my daughter's got to read this uh you know so it was really tough but we've gotten nothing but good feedback so i uh, you know people the message is carried through the emotional part of it so when i was unsure reading it off the words it was you know not used to exposing myself like that. So I was really happy with the response so far. And that's, I, I just, I'm proud of you for doing it. Cause I have somewhere along the way in my own writing, I started off with a blog and I just was writing compulsively on the blog for about, I don't know, six or seven years. And that kind of died down and turned into some book projects. And, and in the process of writing the blog, like I, like it turned into this thing where I just would gush. And I really was, I was laying it all out there. And then, so I t- kind of took the the blog stuff and those turned into the book. So like, I get that. I get that laying it all out there and like, just like, what did I do? And you might get a little bit of 
pushback or a little bit of, uh, it might not resonate with some people, but I'll tell you, I, I don't know where you're at right now, but I don't know if you're getting letters or people are contacting you or, um, but people are going to be grateful for your honesty. I'll tell you that people will respond and people will be very grateful and thank you. Yeah. So, so far the responses we have had been great and to that. And so I, I just want the bad review. Like I, I know it's coming eventually. So it's like, I just want it now. Hammer me. So you hated it. So you hate me. You don't believe me. Get that call out of the way so I can be done with it. But you know, I bet you that doesn't happen. Well, you know, what might happen is is uh, a lot of the reviews right now take place on Amazon, and there are people who just kind of, like, you, there are people who just hate and despise the UFO topic, and they'll kind of troll the uh, reviews on Amazon. So any person who's written a UFO book and published it now that it's 2020, we're sort of beholden to the big giant monster of Amazon. And and it is it just is like one of those data points that's just outlying so don't 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 yeah. take it seriously no no i know not to but i just want it done and over the way but yeah nomar is great especially in his approach um because at no point was he uh you know pandering to me or was he arguing against me he just kind of he wrote the story for what it was he didn't you know, he kind of really stuck with my idea of we're not trying to prove anything. We're not trying to disprove anything. We're just laying out the story. And he was great in that aspect. Yeah. And, and that he played a character in the in the book, too. I mean, his voice was was he was the first person voice and you were the person he was interviewing. So he was giving his own. You know, you would say something in the interview process and then you would have his internal dialogue like. And it was touching. Yeah, I mean, I don't think either of us ever thought it was going to be that um, emotional for both of us to, you know, write this book. But we really connected, and you know, and, and there were a lot. There were moments where, you know, we I'd say something, and he'd kind of react to sit there, and we just kind of look at each other and like, be like, no, all right, we got to take a break. We'd step outside. I'd go have a cigarette or. Something to kind of reset the mood because it would. It would grab us both right, you know, by the heart. You know, we'd both start to choke up a little bit. It's like, what are we doing, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, some, some of the other issues with it and that we really had to trust each other on were, so the book got accepted by the publisher. Um, but I guess it's standard in the industry. I don't really know anything about this, but they're like, we have final say over the title and cover. And Nomar went to me. He's like, I'm not giving that up. I'm not letting them change that. And I'm like, I'm with you. Like, so many experiencers are just so trying to get their stories out there that they agree to anything. And then it gets their words get twisted, turned, and this is like, no, I, we want controls on this. So, him as an author had to walk away from a publisher who said yes. And for him, that was very hard. So, so we had to trust each other on a lot of different levels uh, through this whole process. It really made the book what it is. I mean, we didn't write it too on people's, you know, emotional heartstrings. It's in there because that's all real. Yeah, and it it wasn't cloying or or maudlin or anything like that. Yeah, it came across as very genuine, and it was very. It was two men having a conversation. I really sensed that it didn't have, it wasn't two women. I think if two women had written a book, they could have written the same book. It would have had a different tone, but yeah, it felt like two men kind of just hashing it out. 
So, hey, there's, we're going to have to take our first break here in a minute, but I want to ask just about one story in the book, and that was the kind of the troll character with the toolbox. That one really struck me. Okay. Um, do you want me to do that now or after break? Please, yes, please, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this one was, this one was almost in a dream state, like, phase of memory as far as I can recall. Um, you know, it, it's not like one of those very physical memories of standing out in a field and seeing a craft. I just, I think we do a good job in the book of trying to clarify the different, that difference when we come across it. But uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to sell anything that's not there. So I do try to specify that when I can. Um, so yeah, I had found myself in bed and there was this, uh, for lack of a better term, this troll looking creature. He was, you know, three to four feet tall, kind of bluish, kind of like wrinkled and puggy faced a little bit. And he had the, the large black ominous we all associate with the grays and stuff. And he had this toolbox um, down at the side of the bed and not verbally or out loud or audibly, but I was asking him all these questions, like playing 20 questions with him, like, are you related to the other ones because of the eyes and stuff? And he seemed to know who they were, but he was like not happy with being pestered with the questions. And he's <laughs> trying to do his thing, and, you know. And I, again, this is all I didn't verbally hear the words, but what he said to me was, I'm here to do some tinkering. And right around the time that experience was almost like, you know, my brain went through some type of uh, spiritual rewiring or something. This is when I first began, I'd love to say understand this all, because when we all, but uh, when I first began to, to be able to accept that these things were happening to me um, and kind of move forward with it and do something about it in a positive nature, I'm not sure if it was, you know, a screen memory of something actually happening or some type of, I don't really know what happened to, you know, but it was after that incident that I started to kind of make the shift from being the victim to, all right, this happened. I need to do something about it and help other people. Well, that, so the, this is remarkable that, that, that change came so clearly with this kind of, you know, metaphoric story. I mean, the guy with the, toolkit i think you even said in the book like you know it was sort of like the fix-it guy who came over to work on the water heater <clears throat> and I, that line really struck me as being just kind of just so so workaday plain you know just like it was the, this kind of tinkering that needed to be done to fix the machinery i guess so like leading up to that event what was your headspace um i was very much in the headspace of these things were evil. There was nothing good about them. Um, you know, you'd hear these stories from other people who were like, oh, I had this wonderful experience. I'd be like, BS, you know, there's no way. I just, I couldn't get over the fear of it or the idea that, you know, I was maybe looking at it wrong or that I didn't understand it, that it had to be evil. 
it, you know, and then when I did go back, a lot of it was scary. A lot of it I didn't understand, but there was nothing um, malicious about any of it. It was just my perception of it. And then as I finally started to go back and get past that point, I was able to um, remember a couple incidences that went the other way. It definitely seemed loving or caring or so. You know, I've grown with this throughout my life as, you know, from being that very fearful little boy, which I held on to for so long to where I am now and, you know, being able to help other people. Yeah. Yeah. This, so this is really heartening for me to hear because, like, uh, I've heard a lot of stories and heard a lot of accounts and I really struggle with the, with the you know, oh, it's all love and light or, oh, it's all gloom and doom. Um, because I've heard so many people tell me such heartfelt stories on both sides of that camp. You know, people telling me really traumatic stuff and people telling me really blissful stuff. And to to embrace one means you have to ignore the other one. So that means you're you're kind of like turning your back on you know half the people and that are having these experiences. So it's a it's a tough balancing act. And I've my experiences have been somehow like weirdly neutral like void of like i've had some certainly had some scary stuff but i don't want to say bad but it has been strangely and unsettling in how it has been neutral for me yeah i think the other biggest problem with a lot of it is we always look at it as us versus them and there's probably there's more than one them so if somebody's experience was negative or they perceived it as negative, it might have been with a certain group or somebody, you know, had positive experience. It might have been with a different group or they could have both interacted with the same group and had vice versa, you know, opposite experiences with each group. So, you know, I think it's the biggest problem with ufology. All ufology is the study of the most famous cases and this and that. And there's so much more to it when you just start accepting everything and not trying to label it's good bad this that and you know there's a lot more we can learn yeah yeah and not trying to label it as you know physical or nuts and bolts i think it's a blurring of both yeah and it i mean seems to be that way and especially with people around my age they they seem to have we seem to be in a that shift error of having more physical type events as children but now uh, more spiritual or non-physical type events as we get into adulthood. Well, well into adulthood, but hey, hey, let's pick up on that after this first break because I want to explore that because that's something I've seen too that sure. that change. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and I am talking with Mike Stevens about his experiences and also his new book, Granite Skies. Just before the break, we touched on something that really struck me, that there's a change and and there's sort of a, I don't know whether actually the experiences are changing or let's say just the public acceptance is changing uh, or maybe just the acceptance within the UFO research community is changing from being locked into sort of a nuts and bolts physical type experience and being much more open to seeing the spiritual aspects of it or the consciousness aspects of it or the non-physical aspects of it. And 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 that's I struggled with that when I was confronting that. And I thought it was addressed really nicely in this book. 
um, that that needing to be open, I guess. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think everybody thinks it's kind of this newer thing, part of this whole spiritual age movement. And if we go back and look at some of the stuff these guys have been saying for years, um, you know, as Heineck was making his close encounter, valet's pushing him to include, you know, the more spiritual and non-physical stuff. Bud Hopkins was using terms like meta-terrestrial, you know, this isn't new. It's not new in the research, but I, I really think the acceptance of it is a really new power because you're starting to see a lot more people who are definitely more nuts and bolts start to embrace and uh, realize this. I agree. I agree. Hey, so as far as where I'm at, as far as this stuff, like I sense that there's this, I, I've started to cautiously call the UFO occupants. I've cautiously speaking like, call them the myth makers at times because i think that's a really um for me that that encapsulates much more than the abductors i guess before we get into this so what's your connection to nature how would you how would you describe your connection to nature in the natural world um really good and not close enough at the same time um i can't get enough of it i'm outside daily um especially with you know all these shutdowns and stuff too and a lot of other options and things to do i am constantly out hiking this is something that you are not alone in this there's a there's a there's an aspect of this phenomenon that people people gravitate towards this type of thing and you you told a story in there with a giant face at a window and then also a blue jay i would love to hear that because that one struck me as so bizarre yeah, um, so me and my brother shared a bedroom, and we were on the second floor of this house, and we had this um, bookcase right next to a window with this lamp on it, and we used to, you know, just be boys doing dumb stuff, and we would take crayons, and you'd stand there, and you'd melt them on the light bulb uh, just for something to do, and I was doing that one day, and I happened to turn my head and look out the window, and this giant, you know, just to explain it over the radio, uh, what I would call a gray type, you know, archetype face with the big eyes and stuff, but it was more bluish in actual skin tone, appeared in the window. And it like filled up most of the window. And again, this is a second story window. So as I'm looking at this, this thing's looking at me. This blue jay comes crashing through the face into the window, like inches from my face, and like terrifies me. I, I still have a phobia of birds to this day. Like I, I love watching them, but if they get too close, I freak out. <laughs> Did it hit the glass? Did it like impact the glass? It impacted the glass, like smacked. It didn't break the window or anything like that, but and I don't, you know. The researcher in me now was not in me at that time as a kid. Like, I wish I'd gone out that either that night or the next day to see if there was an actual, like, blue jay on the ground down there. Or... 
Yeah, and and I mean, this is you're also earlier on. You sort of uh, mentioned that the book itself may have had a an invisible hand in the in the creation of the book. Like I'm thinking, like what's the invisible hand? Like who controlled that blue jay to fly into the glass at that moment? You're seeing a blue or a bluish face, and a blue jay, a blue bird, crashes into the window. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that that doesn't make none of it makes sense but um well it makes sense if like let's say you're having let's turn the clock back like 500 years and let's say you're like in the woods of maine and you're part of the algonquin tribe or something like that and 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 you have a powerful visionary experience where you see a giant blue face and then a blue jay flies into your teepee right or your wigwam or whatever you know so i'm just and then like right now, we don't have many people to talk to. I mean, you could talk to your the, the author you were working with, but there was a time when you could have just walked to the edge of the village and, and talked to the shaman about these things. And there would have been in place a whole societal understanding that that blue jay was no accident, that blue jay was a, was a message. Now we're a little adrift. I, I just have to give Nomar a lot of credit. He did exactly what I would have done. He looked up the dream symbolism of a blue jay, and I'm going to read it right here. A blue jay is a symbol of communication, intelligence, and curiosity. It means that blue jay people are very intelligent and determined. The blue jay also may symbolize protection and fearlessness. If a blue jay appears in your life, you will feel safe and protected. And those uh, dream symbolism websites, I think they're they're a little bit, you know, it's the same way when you cautiously talked about your own dream. I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that, but I thought that was that was exactly what I would have done when if I had heard that story, if you had told me that story. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, you know that's a hard part about spend a lot of time in the woods you know definitely had things uh with deer that is like that's not an ordinary deer that is you know that's a symbol that's a message that's something else entirely but you know i, I try not to over uh think because you know sometimes a deer is just a deer sometimes an owl is just an owl especially when you're in their home but so a, a lot of times it's not. So I always, you know, you got to walk the line and know what it means to you, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you can still tell the story and then you can back out half a step and say like, listen, I'm just, I'm cautious to give this too much weight, but it's an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I, the Blue Jay thing that really struck me as a, um, Jesus, that was a powerful story. How old were you at the time when that happened? Do you think? Um, it was fourth grade. So. Wow. Okay. Tennis. Yeah, you were young. Wow. Um, so at, at the same time, you have a story of albino deer, of seeing albino deer. Yeah. Um, uh, there's one stretch of road I used to take quite a bit. It was a back road that, you know, I, I would take it at night because I saw a lot of deer on it. But within this quarter mile stretch, um, I had over different nights, maybe over the span of, I don't know, two years, but all in the same spot, I came across two albino deer there, um, had a giant white owl um, come down, like I had a jam on the brakes, um, right in front of the car there, and I'd also seen, I don't know if I want to call it a craft or not, it had a craft-like shape, but 
it was just like this glowing orb of light all happened right in that same stretch of road. But this, yeah, this, I've heard other people tell this story. Um, uh, Christopher Bledsoe, who's had a lot of powerful experiences, I interviewed him last year, has a stretch of road that he lived on and has just, just a litany of experiences that all kind of fit in this two-mile stretch of road. And I've heard this a lot, is like like an area that's that seems the experiences seem to be tailored to the one individual. Now, this deer, you saw it at a stop sign? Or there were two deer. Both of them were white, and you saw them at a stop sign. Yeah, so the right at the end of that road, it kind of T-bones, and you can go left or right. So I had stopped there, and they were like directly across the road from just both standing there staring at me. Okay, so the author... Uh, made clear that the chance of seeing an albino deer is astronomically small. And then to see two at the same time makes it seem impossible. You know, I don't want to say anything's impossible, but that that's getting pretty close. Now, I look for these metaphoric clues that it happened at a signpost, like at a stop sign. That that struck me, too. Yeah, I mean, I've come to take it now like if you know people believe in spirit guys i think basically um you know extraterrestrials whatever you want to phrase you want to call them i think they operate the same way once you're kind of inducted into you know the system as an experiencer or uh you know that even if you're not seeing a craft that they're always around you know no matter what and it's, it is sometimes little things like that just to give you a message that hey we're still here or, you know it's enough to keep you going going oh yeah they are real like keep doing the research the work and that sort of thing i have a story i've i've shared it a couple of times here i think on the show where um i have a good friend and she had a like a remarkable sighting experience where she was driving uh, her son was actually a very small boy and he was in the back seat of the car still in the little baby seat and um, she was driving and she saw a huge, giant, like football field size craft, like hovering very slow above the road. And she, in essence, like screeches on the brakes and, and it's sort of like directly above her. And it's got like close encounter lights and everything on it. It looks like a special effect out of Hollywood. And um, she runs to a house to try to like say, get out. Come on. You got someone's got to like see this. She was like, she she wanted someone else to see it. And the people came out of the house. It was late at night. And by the time they came out of the house, it was just drifting off over the trees. So they saw light, but they didn't actually see the craft. Now, she gets back in the car. She drives straight just a little ways. She gets, just like you said, to a T-bone intersection. There's a stop sign. And there was a fox sitting at the base of the stop sign. Now, this is a remarkable story. But for me, the the most important part of the story is the fox. Like this, this animal symbolism, this trickster symbolism, like the fox in the Northeast has the same role as the coyote in the Southwest in the lore of the trickster. Like it's there to like get your attention. And, and that struck me when you, with your, with your deer story, like this is absurd, two white deers and something's at play that's trying to get your attention or trying to send you a message or, or maybe just it's a screen memory. And those were two gray aliens that were fogging your mind. I mean, I, I'm right. I, I can't prove that. Right. Yeah. There's multiple possibilities, but I mean, that's one thing me and Nomar really tried to not, not say what we thought it was, or if we did say, well, that's what I think, but you know, we really tried to just leave it to the story. Um, you know, there was another, I don't think this one even made the book. Um, 
my brother was looking for a piece of land and I went with him and we'd seen what I'll call, you know, some regular deer on the way up. We got to the property and as we're walking down the driveway to it, I, for a glimpse, I saw almost like a pixelated, like uh, standard smiley face. Um, just a real quick flash, and then we saw this giant, like moose-sized, white-tailed deer. Wow! Um, so I, so I reached out and I grabbed him by the chest and stopped him, and he saw it too. And he is not into this UFO stuff at all. Um, he, he's kind of like more into the rigid scientist. Like he's like, yeah, maybe it could happen, but I need to see proof type thing. So when we were talking about it after, you know, we were arguing, you know, like, well, how much do you think it weighed? And I, w- I went like closer to what a moose would weigh just because of the size. And he's like, yeah, but it was a deer. So, you know, it's not built like a moose. And he, so he's like, it was, I, I, you know, I'd weigh it a little less. I'd put it at like 600 pounds. And it's like, we all know there's no 600 pound <laughs> white tails out there. <laughs> or that would be a hunter's dream if so, but the pixelated smiley face i mean that's like a such a weird detail yeah that's what i got the first glimpse of and then it like turned into the deer i mean my thinking is whatever it was is you know kind of just put something up and then said oh deer we had just seen regular deer deer was fresh in my memory and just plucked that out and said you're seeing a deer i have a I have a story that someone shared with me uh this came from a researcher named alan kavanis uh a woman woke up in the middle of the night and I think she was in bed and she saw a bright flash out in the front of the house and she gets out of bed and she walks out onto her front porch to see what the big flash was and she looks right next to the porch and standing right next to her are like three gray aliens, classic gray aliens. And she kind of catches them off guard. They look at her and she looks at them and they kind of have this like vibe of like, oops, we're busted. And then she watches them kind of go Voot, and they, they morph into three deer. And then they very awkwardly walk backwards. Like deer don't really walk backwards. They totally walk backwards, staring at her the whole time and then go around the corner of the house out of view. So so we could talk for hours. We'll never know exactly what happened in your event. But these are the kind of stories that really, like these are the threads I want to pull on, these kind of stories. So. Yeah, and we tried to highlight a little bit, you know, that it's not just, you know, you're once you start having these experiences and you're kind of wrapped into them for the long haul, you know, it's not just when you see the light in the sky. It's not, you know, just when you're having a encounter, like it's these weird little things that happen every day of your life while you're still trying to get through normal things, pay your bills, keep a job, you know, you know, and it's always your mind doesn't think the way it used to anymore. And certainly not like most uh, you know, people on the streets. So trying to get through just a regular day with all this stuff becomes quite a challenge, <laughs> whether it's trauma filled or just you're kind of lost in your own head thinking, you know? I know. I know more than any. Oh, but you're like, I, I laugh. That was like a nervous laugh of understanding. Like, I know more than you, more than, wow, man, I know. Like, it is, like, I, I've said this before and I don't want to talk up too much of your time, but like, I spent six years of my life where I walked around and I am not exaggerating. I spent 95% of every waking hour wondering if I had gone insane. That went on for like six years. And uh, that's, it's mellowed out greatly since then. 
so I don't no longer think I've gone insane. I, I recognize there's something really there. I accepted it and that helped a lot. Well, and I mean, even now I've, you know, gotten a f few years under my belt. I've helped to talk to a tons of people. I, you know, I've been on stages and this and that radio shows and done all this stuff. And I still have that bad day where it's full of self doubt. And you're like, what if I really am crazy and I am just <laughs> running around telling all these people, you know, and then you, you figure it out, you come back to your senses, like, no, there's too much has happened for that to be the answer. But it still just kind of worries you some days. Yeah, well, it certainly worries you. But uh, but I mean, we're human. We have to press on. That's what humans do. We like persevere in the face of all kinds of challenges. So, hey, let's take our second break here. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking to Mike Stevens about his experiences as well as his book, Granite Skies. One thing in the book that I didn't realize it was you. So there's a marker for the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and it is on the road. I have been to it in New Hampshire. It's just this little state road, and it, there's a little plaque there. And was that you? Can we trace all that back to you, that that uh, marker? Um, yes, originally, but we we can't give me all the credit, and I'll explain it as we go. I, I was the one who um, kind of came up with the idea, and I started the petition for it, which is a process um, all New Hampshire state historical markers have to go through. Um, you know, they need, uh, I think, at least 20 signatures. Um, they have rules for how many lines of text the characters per line can be there. And I wrote the original draft and this and that. And as we started working on it, uh, Kathleen Martin, Betty Barney's niece, and an uh, esteemed researcher herself, uh, got on board with it, too. And once she got on board, she had... Um, you know, everything the state needed to back up this claim, that claim, this claim, you know. So, you know, it was because of her really pushed through. I just kind of really spearheaded and started it. But it was once she got on board that it was like, wow, this is going to happen. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're not saying an abduction happened. We're saying that the cultural impact of them claiming to have been abducted, that in itself is so historical that we will approve the marker. And that's a totally prudent way to say it, because I mean, abduction, like, I mean, I'm totally lost. I mean, that's a that's a vocabulary word that kind of has a meaning in the dictionary, but it, like it gets so blurry when you try to fit this giant mess of weirdness into that one word. So yeah, but yeah, right on for you. That's awesome. Um, that, I keep on that case. That case is brought up so often as like the baseline for everything after. It is, which I mean, I think it's a great case. Uh, I love it. There's so much, so many components about it that make it such a great case and just the type of people they really were in that whole era of, you know, there's no way they would have come out with this. Uh, the biggest problem with that case, not so much that case, but cases after is for a long time, all cases were judged by that case. They were looking for, th if you're out, case did not have the elements that Betty and Barney did, well, we didn't know if it was true. And if it did, well, you're copying. So, you know, so it was a double-edged sword that I think uh, ufology kind of went whichever way they wanted to for a while. But I think we're, we're past that now. So. Yeah, yeah. 
hey, you have an experience that, that I found fascinating in the book and quite touching. And and it was, you call it your change of address story? Oh, yeah. I would love to hear that if you could. Yeah, so we ended up moving just down the street. Um, our landlord had a bigger um, apartment opened up and we needed a bigger apartment. So it worked out perfect. And this is you and your wife. Yeah. And both our kids at that point. And so we moved like in the fall when the leaves were off the trees, you could see one house from the other. Like it, this was not a huge across town move. It was just a couple houses down. So we moved in and we hadn't been there all that long. And one night, I I don't remember getting up or getting out of bed, but I found myself um, standing at the old apartment, uh, kind of waiting by the corner of the house. Like I was sitting there eating cough drops. Uh, like and to me, it felt like I was waiting for a bus or something. Like that. I'm, it, it felt very mundane, very normal. Like I, I had no idea what I was waiting for, but I was just sitting there waiting. You and this know? is this is at your old home, which is just a few blocks away. This so. is at the old home, right? Okay. Yes. Um, so at some point, I kind of walked around the corner a little bit to kind of face the house front on, like to look at the front door almost. And as I walked to the front of the, got to about the middle of the front of the yard. Um, from around the other corner, I saw this ball of light, like basketball-sized light, um, just, you know, a little bit off the ground. But as soon as I made saw it, made this connection with it, it started um, coming towards me. But as it was coming towards me, it was rising in height. Um, and for whatever reason, even though I saw it as this ball of light, my mind said, oh, this is this big dog. It's going to jump on you. So I turned around to brace, for, you know, and waited for the impact of this dog to, like, hit me in the shoulder. After a minute, or it probably wasn't a minute, but, I, you know, after a reasonable amount of time, like, all right, why didn't I feel anything? You know, I went to open my eyes, and I found myself just surrounded in, like, blue light, like 15... Um, feet in the air above the lawn um I, I tried to scream and couldn't make a noise and woke up in bed the next morning i went to tell my wife about it and she said yes yeah, you get out of bed and get dressed and leave the other night and so one that's just it you know it, it angered me a lot like why would you just let me do that? Like I blamed her, you know, I was still very much thinking, all right, this is negative. All these experiences are negative at this point. Um, you know, why would you let that happen to me Two, our relationship was getting to be on the rocks at this point too. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of trust there, especially not that she would have let me got up, got dressed in the middle of the night and just left without any questioning. Um, but so I, I got mad at her for like letting this happen and blamed her and maybe a day or two passed before I cooled down and kind of said, all right, that's ridiculous. How is it her fault? 
and asked her about it again. And she not only didn't remember seeing me get out of bed at this point, at this point, she didn't even remember having the conversation we had had about me uh, getting up out of bed and leaving. And, and this is, this is very normal that, that, you know, other witnesses will all of a sudden things get scrambled up. They'll say something one moment, they'll forget it the next moment. Yeah, this is, this is interwoven into the whole thing. So, and, um, and this, like in the book you talk, it was stressful. Like it comes across as a, like a hard point in your life, this, you know, dealing with this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really thought I was either, you know, not pro most definitely insane, but at the same point, having like a breakdown um, as well, you know, because it was a mix of like trying to accept this stuff, but still not fully wanting to accept it, still not wanting it to be real. Um, you know, I was having almost what I would call like flashbacks or, you know, I, I'd like see stuff out of the corner of my eyes. I'd like look over, see an alien in a rock chair we didn't own a rocking chair you know i really felt like i was breaking apart yeah and i i get that hey there's a story that comes out as a little playful almost and you you saw a white weasel on your on your brother's porch <laughs> yeah um yeah so i was um getting up getting ready for work um one morning i was staying with my brother at the time and he had a little um, screened off porch where I could sip my coffee and have a cigarette, you know, put on my boots, get ready type thing. And I was sitting out there uh, having a coffee and a cigarette, just getting ready to start the day. And I looked out to the street and sitting on the sidewalk was this all white. It looked like a weasel from the top half down, but then kind of like fattened out closer to a cat or a raccoon type thing. And it was, for the most part, all white. It, and it had these big black almond eyes, like you'd see with the grays and stuff. And it was just staring at me. And I'm looking at it, and I was you know, trying to process it. And I'm staring right at it, and I'm like, I don't know what you are, but it's way too early for this, and you're freaking me out. And then, without missing a beat, like it seemed to understand me, turned its head, and walked off. And then so then I was just stuck in this odd moment of like, it understood me. What was that? Should I have talked to it? Should I not have? Should I have sent it away? Like it was, yeah, it was a little, a little morning malady of confusion, but definitely a more good natured story than some of the others. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so and this was, this was in the summer. So like if it was a weasel, I mean, certain weasels do turn white in the winter, uh, like um, least weasels and a least weasel is about the size of a, it's like smaller than a hot dog. You know, they're tiny. Then they turn all white in the winter. So you're talking about something much bigger than a than a little least weasel, which you could hold in the palm of your hand. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other thing we talked about earlier. Like, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I can misidentify, you know, something. But I do spend a lot of time in the woods and in nature. I'm pretty good at knowing what animal looks like what. So, yeah, it was just a, another layer of confusion where, you know, because... That was not rural, but it wasn't, uh, you know, really developed either. Like, you're still trying to play, like, all right, is this wild animals? Is somebody's pet of some sort? Is it what? Is it this? Is it that? 
And then you just kind of lose, all, throw all that out the window and you're like, I think it understood me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was funny, like right in the moment, like when it turned and trotted away, you were like, ooh, should I have asked it a question? I thought that was such a perfect, like, like it may have had an answer, you know? Like that's like, that's like the kind of thing from a, you know, I don't know, the Hobbit or something like that. If they saw a funny little animal <laughs> on the path that, and it walked away, I'm sure they would have the same thing. Oh, we should have talked to that little animal. So, um, you have a story in your book um, about your daughter, and you were you were camping at like an established campsite, and and I guess she would have been about thirteen, fourteen years old. I'm not sure. I couldn't make it out in the story. It didn't it didn't say in the story in the book. Yeah, um, she might have been in the age range she might have been like a year or two younger um i tell everybody write everything write everything down write everything down i'm horrible at it so sometimes you know these years or guesses are the best i can do it's not um you know i don't have a lot to go on to tell you exactly how old she was without doing a full-scale investigation of my reservations through the park and all this stuff so because to me, that part doesn't really matter so much. Um, but anyways, yeah, I was camping out with my daughter at this remote site. Uh, the campground I've been going to since I was little. Um, I know it inside and out. I absolutely love it there. It's one of my favorite places on Earth. So, um, you know, she grew up camping as soon as she was big enough to there with me. Um, on this occasion, she was, like I said, that teenage age and didn't want to hang out with her dad she wanted to bring a friend so we brought a friend with us we didn't get real good cell service at this site which is one of the reasons i love it one of the reasons she doesn't um, but they knew if they walked up the trail back to the um parking lot they could get a little bit of service and then they wanted to go walk out while they're out there to check their phones do the bath or wash your faces do you know teenage girl stuff I was like, yeah, you're fine. You've been, you know, coming here forever. You know your way around this campground. I, I, it's no reason I needed to go with her or anything. And so they went out and they did what they had to do. And, you know, they, they had been gone a little bit longer than I thought it should take, but it, not long enough that I was worried yet. I figured they were just doing whatever, you know, they didn't have to enjoyed their time around the fire the same way I was, you know, I just wanted them to be happy that they were there. So I wasn't really too concerned about it. Oh, oh so you were, you were totally up sitting at the fire at this point. Yeah. 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 It was just, it had just gotten dark, you know, probably about duskish as they walked out and it was, you know, just probably fully dark by the time they made it back. And she's going, Dad, Dad, you're not going to believe this. And she starts telling me what happened. And what happened was they they went out, checked their phones. They went to the bathrooms. They walked back down the trail to um, get back to the campsite. And it's not a long trail. It's like 500 feet. It, it's, you know, it's not a long trail at all. And I've got a fire going. I've got a little alien head of all things, like a neon uh, LED on the table you know there was lights around so didn't have flashes they're just using their phones which they should have made it so what happens is they somehow they get like three four steps into this trail 
they get disorientated that they don't realize where they are anymore. The next thing you know, they hear an owl hoot and they come out by the bathrooms across the park, you know, and it's all cliffs, um, rocky hill, like with no flashlights in the dark, they wouldn't have made it. So she's like I said, she's been going there since she was little. They walk back the road, found the trail. Somehow they got off that 500 foot trail again and only found the campsite because they could see that little alien head glowing on the picnic table, which they kind of just trotted through the woods as best they could to make it there. Um, but yeah, that's that was what happened to them that night. And she was like, Dad, Dad, she's telling me all this. You're not going to believe it. And I'm like worst father of the year right now because I'm laughing my butt off going, no, no, you're not going to believe it. I believe every word of it, you know? <laughs> And you now this is so like, we can edit this out if you want to, but I've talked to a lot of parents and they all tell these stories about their children. And it is like, that is the, the hardest part of what I've been doing. Hands down is talking to parents who have concerns about their children. How is, how's she doing? She's doing um, good. She, she's like, she has an interest in it, but she doesn't, uh, you know, want it to take over her life quite yet. She's not ready to give up her whole life like I have to, you know, do this stuff. But um, she's good. Yeah, good for her. She's had a couple other experiences with me. You know, she believes in it. She knows it's there. Um, and the, but she knows she can talk to me about it, where I didn't have that growing up, you know, and that's hopefully what the book will do, um, you know, hopefully it reaches a lot of people who need to hear and go, yeah, that happened to me, like, and not feel alone. But when my time here is gone, like, if this starts happening to my grandkids or something, hopefully they can go, look, this this runs in the family. You're not alone. You're not crazy. That's, I mean, my biggest goal for the book. But, yeah, it's so hard. As a parent, your job is to protect your children no matter what. And when you can't even protect yourself from it, never mind them it, it's terrifying and you feel you feel like a failure and it's it, it's really hard to get through yeah and i'm not a parent and so so you know i i can only tap into this from the outside but yeah the, the emotions this the heaviest emotions i've ever heard connected to this stuff have come from parents yeah so i thanks for answering that i was really cautious to to put it out there hey on page 165 of the book there was a very odd moment and you had what amounts to like a telepathic voice in your head that came uh, i think from a star in the sky and it's in the voice said i'm going to read it right from the text here it said you have a daughter out here and you'll see her within the next year and that happened in 2018 i think mm -hmm. yeah so um i was actually believe it or not having a a normal day, uh, you know, no conferences, no interviews, no researching it. Like I was just having a, I'm going to pretend I'm a regular human being type day. And we were sitting down and um, watching a movie, having dinner. And it wasn't even a spooky or sci-fi movie. It was uh, the Ray Charles movie or something. Just, you know, really mundane, nothing to trigger aliens or scary stuff in your brain. And I, you know, about three times the speed of light as my girlfriend at the time. So 
I finished and went outside for a cigarette. And I was looking around and at the stars because that's just my thing. And I didn't like see a particular star that caught my eye or one that was twinkling a little too bright or anything like that. Everything just seemed very normal. And then just out of the blue, like with this wave of emotion and feeling, this whole thing just hit me and like almost brought me to my knees. Like, you have a daughter out here and you're going to see her. Um, and it wasn't just so much hearing the words. It came with such an emotional intensity. Like I said, it almost dropped me. I, I started crying, um, you know, back in the house. And she was like, what the hell just happened? You know, and so I'd explain to her and this and that. But. I don't recall that ever coming true. I don't know if it did or didn't, but I have no recollection of it. So that story, what you just shared there, I have heard that in some way or another, I don't know, many dozens of times, if not more. And whether it's exactly, it's not quite word for word what you just shared, but in some form or another, I've that, that story is interwoven into this stuff in a way that, that leaves me absolutely baffled. You know, how literal do I take that? that story yeah yeah I mean it's a you know that one then you kind of you start to think well you know and I think this is a big change for some of us anyways that you, you go from this mindset well am I an abductee like is this a foreign entity from outer space coming to you know take me away in the middle of the night or am I actually somehow connected to whatever this experience experiences are and just don't realize it and so you you know you have both ends and trying to find a middle ground with them is nearly impossible it is very difficult hey we're really close to the end of our time here and this this time just raced by i'm shocked at how quick this went and and i just i want to really formally say thank you because i i feel like i pushed hard as far as some of the emotional stuff, some of the questions I asked, and you were so gracious to to answer everything in it, and I appreciate it greatly. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to have me on, and, you know, hopefully it's, you know, worth it. Hopefully somebody hears this and it helps them. I'm certain people will hear this. Many people will hear this or read your book, and I'm certain it will help them. Hey, how do people get in touch with you or check out your work? Yeah, so um, I'm on Facebook. That's probably the easiest, best way, quickest. And that's um, just look for Granite Sky and that'll pop up. Um, and we also have the website, which is granitesky.org. Um, and that'll give you a list of services, a little bit of my background on how to contact me and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, between web page and the Facebook that'll let you know when there's meetings and things like that going on as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Hey, thanks for all the hard work and, and, and your work with experiencers too. your work with other people trying to come to terms with this. That, that means a lot to me personally, that you're, that you're not locking yourself away. You're putting yourself out there in the hopes of helping people. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Wonderful. This has been a great time. Thank you. This is Mike and I am chiming in after the editing.
First off, I just want to again say thank you to Mike for being so open in this interview. And I also wanted to talk about the author of the book. I have never met him, and I just want to take a minute. I'm just going to read his biography from the Amazon page. His name is Nomar Slevik. So Nomar Slevik is an independent creator, researcher, and investigator in numerous aspects of the paranormal. He delights in sharing stories through different mediums, such as books, documentaries, and podcasts. Slevik has been fascinated by all things paranormal since childhood, beginning with a UFO encounter at four years of age. Now, 42, his life's passion has been to research, investigate, write, and share UFO and extraterrestrial encounters from everyday people in a way that conveys the human element of profoundly strange encounters. Nomar is from Maine, and that is right next to New Hampshire, so there is a very heavy New England vibe in this book. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.